KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The U.S. Supreme Court deals a setback to farm worker unions. The owners of the land have the right to exclude anybody, including union organizers. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heineman has the day off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Coronado High School's basketball coach has been fired after a display of racism at last Saturday's championship game. This outcome is not exactly surprising with so many people looking for a decisive action from the Coronado Unified School District. California lawmakers are trying to help students make up for a year of lost learning due to the pandemic. And a musician finds inspiration in crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The Supreme Court today struck down a rule in California that allowed unions limited access to farms to try and organize workers. The court's conservative majority found the rule violates constitutionally protected property rights. It's the latest in a series of legal setbacks for organized labor. Joining me to unpack what the ruling means is Dan Eaton, legal analyst and partner at the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Andrew. Now, there were limits as to when union organizers could access private farms in California prior to this Supreme Court ruling. Remind us what those limits were. Well, understands that the regulation that was at issue provided union organizers only access to these farms for the three hours a day, 120 days per year. And that was an hour before work, an hour during lunch, and an hour after work for the purpose of talking to workers. The question is whether that access to the uh, farmer's property constituted a taking under the Fifth Amendment of the United States, which requires the uh, government to uh, pay just compensation if property is taken either for itself or someone else. And that was really the issue. So why do union organizers say that they need access to farms? Why do they deserve to get onto this private property? Well, the the reason that the uh, government wanted to uh, appropriate this right of access or easement to the property for the union organizers was because without it, they have a very difficult opportunity uh, to uh, gain access to these farm workers who may or may not be interested in organizing. It effectively, at least according to the uh, union organizers, eliminates their opportunity effectively to organize uh, their workers. And therefore, as a practical matter, if this access to property is not allowed, the union organizers have no effective ability and the union uh, and the workers themselves have no effective ability uh, to organize for purposes of their uh, wages, hours, and working conditions. And farm workers, of course, are famously very transitory, don't spend a whole lot of time and, and maybe moving from farm to farm. Now, this decision was a clean split between the court's six conservative justices and the three liberal justices. What did the majority say in striking down this rule in California? 
Well, first, let me note that that is one of the fascinating things about the case is that you do have a clean split between the six conservative justices and three liberal justices, which we really haven't seen much. But basically what the conservative majority writing through Chief Justice John Roberts said is that this is a per se taking of land. Even though the union organizers are not given permanent and continuous access, it still eliminates the owner's right to exclude uh, these uh, union organizers from their property. It doesn't matter if it's temporary. The fact is that the owner's rights are being interfered with, and that is a problem, and it requires uh, just compensation. The fact that the uh, farms are not generally open to the public means that, uh, unlike in the case of a shopping mall, the owners of the land have the right to exclude uh, anybody, including union organizers, and this regulation interfered with that right. What did the court's three liberal justices, Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor, say in their dissenting opinion? They said, well, come on, let's uh, let's be realistic here. You're not talking about uh, something that is a permanent and continuous intrusion. You're not so- talking about a taking. You're really talking about something that feels more like a regulation, a temporary regulation for a public purpose uh, that is uh, not taking away any kind of real value uh, from the o- owner's land. And therefore, uh, really, there's no reason to treat this as an absolute taking. Regulations are okay. Plus, said the uh, dissent, you're going to start interfering with all kinds of other reasons that the government needs access to uh, land, such as, for example, uh, health and safety regulations. The majority opinion said, no, we're not. That The hypothetical you've suggested uh, doesn't apply here because the government can still take trespass actions for the purposes of public use. That's not what this is. And that was a distinction that was made in the disagreement between the majority and the dissent. Now, the crux of this decision, as you noted, is whether allowing union organizers onto private property is an unlawful taking of that property with Without just compensation. So does this theoretically mean that unions could still access the farms if, say, they or the government pay the property owner for that access? Or is it just a de facto ban on that access altogether? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting and complicated question that'll have to be resolved when the case is uh, sent back to the district court. The issue of remedy was really not addressed by the majority opinion and only briefly touched on uh, by the dissent. But at least theoretically, yes, a government may take property, and it happens all the time. The Fifth Amendment requires, and the Fourteenth Amendment as applied to the states, uh, requires that they provide just compensation. Those are interesting questions that will have to be resolved below if the state continues to want to have this regulation uh, where it allows union organizers access to farm property. Now, this Supreme Court has not been friendly to organized labor. What are some of the other recent Supreme Court decisions that have rolled back the power of unions in the country? The the one case, obviously, uh, which was written by uh, Alito a few years ago, said that public employees could not be required to pay agency fees if they were not members of uh, of the union. And uh, Justice Alito said, no, you can't do that uh, consistent with the National Labor Relations Act because these uh, employees have the right not to have part of their paycheck uh, put into union coffers if they affirmatively choose not to uh, join the union. Uh, And what the union said was that, wait, you're just allowing them to be a freeloader because they get all the benefits without putting in all of the money to pay for those benefits. Alito said, no, you just can't allow them to be forced to pay in violation of their free speech right to abstain 
from being members of the union. I've been speaking with Dan Eaton, legal analyst and partner at the San Diego law firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. And Dan, thanks as always. Good to be with you, Andrew. Last night, the Coronado Unified School Board voted unanimously to fire their head basketball coach just days after an incident where tortillas were thrown at players from a rival, predominantly Latino, high school. The vote was taken behind closed doors, and the board has not yet commented further on the decision. Joining me with more is KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim. Christina, welcome. Hey, Andrew. As we just mentioned, the Coronado Unified School Board voted unanimously to fire this head basketball coach. Do you think this was the expected outcome once the backlash really started to mount in the wake of this incident? It's hard to say what's expected, but what we do know is that since the incident happened on Saturday night, there was a mounting call for Coach J.D. LaPerry to be let go. Just yesterday, in front of Coronado High School, there was a rally of advocates as well as Orange Glen parents that were calling for his termination and really putting the onus of the incident on the coach. So in that sense, this outcome is not exactly surprising, with so many people looking for a decisive action from the Coronado Unified School District. And people saying that the apology uh, wasn't really enough. So what do we know exactly about what transpired at the basketball game on Saturday? What was the sequence of events? Sure. What we know so far is that it was a championship game between Orange Glen and Coronado High. These teams have previously faced each other, and it was already kind of charged. After Coronado High won, Coach J.D. LaPerry allegedly approached Orange Glen's coach and shouted profanities to get his, quote, loser team out of the gym. At that point, it's believed some players and others did throw tortillas at the Orange Glen players, which, as you've said, is a predominantly Latino school, which then led into a scuffle and where we are today. Have there been any calls for further punishment or action beyond just the firing of the basketball coach? That's right. Well, we've heard from some organizations, such as the local chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, asked that Coronado implement ethnic studies and anti-racist courses. That's actually something that I heard echoed by Cassandra Garibe, who's the sister of an Orange Glen basketball player. She says if everyone had anti-racist curriculum, perhaps these types of incidents wouldn't happen. We've also seen LULAC and, which is the League of United Latin American Citizens, and the NAACP urging CIF, the California Interscholastic Federation, to further investigate and even consider stripping Coronado High of its championship title. For now, CIF is saying it's just waiting to get the incident reports from both schools. And when I reached out for comment this morning about J.D. LaPerry's firing, they said they didn't have any further comment and haven't taken any further actions. So as we said, this incident targeted players from Orange Glen High, which is a predominantly Latino uh, student body. What has the response been from the students there? Right. I mean, I think it's just when these incidents happen, it's a ripple effect of pain for the students, for the players, and for their families. As I mentioned, Cassandra Garibe, her brother Anthony plays on the team. And what she said is that she identifies as Hispanic and Latina and that their family normally doesn't get involved or, you know, isn't really active, but that this event has really shaken their family, that they're really in disbelief. Her mother is just 
very emotional right now. And I think that's what we're seeing writ large. It's just very hard when these incidents happen. And I think we have to remember it was a basketball game. You know, for the Orange Glen High School basketball players, they were already suffering a loss. So on top of this, and now this national attention, I think there's just a sense of of pain and kind of looking forward to what's going to happen next. How has the administration of Orange Glen High School or other officials in Escondido, where that school is based, uh, responded to this incident? I mean, of course, they've denounced the incident and they've said that they're really working with their community to heal. You know, Dr. Ann Steferi, who's the superintendent of the Escondido Unified School District, told me that, quote, this is an opportunity for restorative justice, an opportunity to reflect, to learn, and to adjust behaviors. So what we're really seeing here is, yes, you know, officials at Orange Glen denounced the incident. They really want to see accountability. They want to see Coronado Unified School District and Coronado High really take accountability for for their actions. But I think what we've seen on both sides is that there's a commitment to opening the road for further dialogue of healing. Restorative justice, again, is the practice of centering those impacted, but then creating a space and an opportunity for people to heal, to face accountability, and to talk to one another and grow. So there has been really widespread condemnation of this incident, which is pretty transparently racist, but some are saying that the gesture of throwing these tortillas at the opposing team was not meant to be racist, or that the actions that were taken by Coronado Unified School District in firing this coach are an overreaction. What can you tell us about that? Right. I mean, yesterday, the Coronado Unified School District did have a special meeting, and and some people did speak up to that matter, as you're saying. They feel that the school is too quickly condemning these actions as racist, that their apologies are throwing the basketball players under the bus as opposed to doing a further investigation. So those sentiments definitely do exist. But what we heard at last night's meeting and what we've often heard when these incidents happen is that with racism, we often talk about intent. But in reality, it's not it's not what's intended. If the tortilla throwing wasn't intended to be racist, it was still felt to be racist, right? It was perceived as such, and the harm that it's causing is that of a racist incident. And so what we heard from the Coronado Unified School District governing board is that it, it's it's not about intent. It's about how it's actually impacting the community. And, and that's how it's being treated. I've been speaking with KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim. And Christina, thank you for your reporting and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Heinemann has the day off. 
The rush is on for a California Assembly bill that addresses learning loss suffered by students during the pandemic. AB 104, sponsored by San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, has passed the legislature and is now awaiting Governor Newsom's signature. Some of its main provisions allow parents to request their child be allowed to repeat a grade and provide students with credit recovery options if last year had a bad effect on their grades. But schools will need some time to adjust to those new options, so the clock is ticking before next semester begins. Joining me is San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. What have you learned about how much educational loss was suffered by California students during the pandemic? I don't think um, we know the extent yet. I have learned um, that there are kids who missed months and their kids who missed the entire year. So um, we know bad internet connections, people having to work, take care of younger siblings. I mean, the number of reasons kids have missed so much um, school vary from family to family. And some kids just couldn't deal with online education. Um, We knew that going into the pandemic, that it's not a good way to educate, especially young children. So what we found is every family is in a different position. Every kid is um, suffering in different ways, and we've got to have the flexibility to meet them where they are and to provide unique choices for those children and those parents to kind of deal with what happened last year. And what groups of students were most affected, do you think? Well, I know in San Diego that... um, the students in, in my district, which is, of course, the working class communities in South San Diego and Chula Vista and National City, um, had unique problems, right? They had unique issues. We, we um, had kids whose families were most affected by COVID um, health-wise, kids who lost parents and grandparents. Um, we had kids who uh, whose parents were essential workers. And so um, they were watching younger children as well at home, trying to do their schoolwork and and be caretakers at the same time. Um, We have bad internet connections in some of our neighborhoods still. We we don't have universal broadband. And so um, I think those kids in particular from working class families, um, Latino kids in particular were, were most affected. Now, if Governor Newsom signs AB 104, what are some of the things it would do? So AB 104 does three things primarily. One, it allows parents the opportunity to seek um, a redo of the grade for their child. So that's not our our preferred policy position in California when it comes to education. We, We believe in social promotion for a variety of reasons. So that was probably the most controversial. Um, But we know that some kids missed the entire year. What do you do with a child who missed the entire year um, or got nothing out of school this year? Um, So it allows parents that opportunity to talk to the administrator and teacher about their child redoing the school year. And that's in any grade. It also allows um, our seniors who maybe just couldn't couldn't finish up in time. Um, our juniors and seniors who who lost some um, credits to recover those in high school. We know that a high school diploma is much more valuable than a GED, and we want those kids to have the opportunity to finish up their schooling um, this coming year, and so that they can actually graduate with a high school diploma. There are kids who who dropped out of school to join the workforce. There are kids who just couldn't handle the online education, and and we know it's valuable to allow them that opportunity to have a fifth 
your senior, basically. And then the final thing it does, this is for, I think, the majority of kids, um, primarily in high school, or only in high school, who may have been really good students, right? They might have had um, an A and B average headed to college, and then they just couldn't do one of their subjects or two of their subjects online. And we, we've seen this. I, I think you can talk to just about anyone who said, I have this A student um, who couldn't figure out how to do Spanish online and she got a C. Well, if you get a C, um, it, it really hurts your chances of actually getting into a UC or CSU. And so we want them to be able to convert, um, you know, one or two not perfect seller grades to pass, no pass so that their grade point average isn't hurt as a result. So if you passed a grade and, and that one grade is going to upset your entire transcript, let's give them that opportunity. Now, there's an urgency to the signing of this bill because schools have deadlines for the coming semester. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about this this morning. My um, my little ones, this is their last day of school today. So, you know, um, when kids are in school, it's the best time to communicate with parents that they have these options. Um, my 18-year-old my is graduating on Friday, and most of the school districts in South San Diego, in Chula Vista, Sweetwater districts, they're coming back in July already. They have year-round, and so they start at the end of July. So we really need, um, there was an urgency on this. We got it through as quickly as we could, given that it was semi-controversial, um, but it ended up getting through the Assembly and Senate with uh, no, no votes. In other words, it, it was completely bipartisan. It was unanimous. That's unusual, especially for, for a bill that started with a lot of opposition. Um, and now we're just hopeful that the governor, um, you know, he has 12 days as of two days ago to sign it. So we have, I think July 3rd is the deadline, but we, we hope he realizes, you know, every day is, is a day that the schools need to implement this. Have you gotten any indication that he will sign the bill? I haven't. <laughs> um, I'm, I am, um, you know, every day asking his staff uh, if there there's more questions or answers they need. We've been working on this for so long. Um, you know, we're, we're still waiting. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Have a good day. In 2019, on Governor Gavin Newsom's first full day in office, he declared a war on wildfires. I hear you. I get it. Uh, we need to do more and do better. Uh, these last two years have been devastating. With that announcement, Newsom signed a sweeping executive order that he said would overhaul the state's approach to wildfire prevention. But did it? Capital Public Radio reporter Scott Rod spoke with California Report host Lily Jamali about that question. Here's that interview. You found that after an initial spike, the state is actually doing less wildfire prevention work under Governor Newsom than under his predecessor. Talk about what you found. That's right. Our investigation found that in 2020, the worst fire season in California history, wildfire prevention work dropped by half of what was done the previous year. And at the same time, Newsom had cut funding for wildfire prevention in the budget by over $100 million. And it's worth noting that was before COVID-19 hit. This year through Memorial Day, we also found that the state remains below its goal for fire prevention work. Newsom didn't talk to us for the story, but we did talk to Cal Fire Chief Tom Porter. Here's what he had to say. It's not something that I'm comfortable with. It is something that, that I am working to reconcile 
and to um, uh, correct for the future, but we had an exceptional fire year. Everybody knows that. The environment to do this kind of work uh, has been very challenging and has hampered our ability to get the acres that we do have planned for, but we haven't been able to put the attention to. And you know, fire experts I spoke to said that there's some credence to that. It was an extraordinary fire season, COVID-19 complicated things, but it also shows just how fragile the prevention infrastructure in California is and the need to strengthen it. Because at the end of the day, fire doesn't take a break because of a pandemic or because the state's experiencing a different emergency. Yeah, and it sounds like what Chief Porter is saying there is that they did less wildfire prevention work because they had so many wildfires last year and that those fires blocked CAL FIRE from doing that wildfire prevention work. That is a concerning precedent. You know, over the last year or two, we've heard Governor Newsom again and again boast about these wildfire prevention projects that CAL FIRE had supposedly completed across the state. What has happened with those? When Newsom first entered office, he asked CAL FIRE to give him recommendations on how the state could get its arms around the wildfire problem. CAL FIRE came back and they recommended dozens of fire prevention projects that would help protect some of the most vulnerable communities in California. Those projects at first represented about 90,000 acres that were going to be treated. Through our data review and uh, records polling, we found that they had only completed about 12,000 of those acres. But nevertheless, Newsom claimed that the state had treated the full 90,000 acres. And that's important because it signals to those communities that they're being kept safe by this prevention work, again, in areas that are very susceptible to wildfires. Well, it's remarkable to hear that difference, 12,000 acres completed versus 90,000 acres touted. It's hard to process how the governor could be, you know, touting those numbers when they're so far from reality. You've been talking to fire survivors about this. What's been their reaction? One person in particular, Mitch McKenzie, who has experienced quite a bit with wildfires in recent years. He lost his home to the Tubbs Fire in 2017 and had about a a third of his inventory at his wine business uh, essentially ruined by fire and smoke last year. He told me that he felt like he was being deceived by what Newsom had told the public. When a politician can make a statement that he's treated um, 100% of a certain area that he lays out, and then the truth comes out that he's only treated 10% of it. I think that with the kind of fires and the fire danger that we're in in this area, that's quite shocking. Mitch McKenzie there, a 2017 wildfire victim weighing in as we come off the worst fire season on record and as we brace for the year ahead. Cap Radio, Scott Rod, thank you so much for this reporting. Thank you. A case against one of California's gun reform laws, which could be a bellwether for the fate of many such laws, was heard by the full panel of judges of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Tuesday. The issue was whether California's voter-approved ban on large-capacity magazines, which hold 10 rounds of ammunition or more, violates the Second Amendment. The arguments for and against the ban may also apply to other California gun reform measures, and a ruling in favor of gun rights advocates could open the door to a dismantling of the state's strict gun laws. And joining me is Courthouse News reporter Bianca Bruno. And Bianca, welcome. 
Hi, Maureen. How are you? Very well. Now, tell us more about what this law bans gun owners from having. So Proposition 63 was passed by two-thirds of California voters in 2016, and it basically strengthened the state's ban on large-capacity gun magazines, which hold 10 rounds of ammunition or more. And so the state had passed that ban in 2000, but it allowed for a grandfather exemption for gun owners who had purchased the magazines prior to that law to keep them. So in 2016, voters decided they didn't like that exemption and that no one should be allowed to own these firearm attachments that are used in virtually all mass shootings. This case, Duncan v. Becerra, has already been decided in favor of gun rights advocates in a lower court and in a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit. Now the full 11-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit is hearing the case. So tell us about the arguments that they heard yesterday. First, from the state defending the ban. So the state has argued that as part of its public health interest to protect Californians, that it needs to ban firearm attachments that are most frequently used in mass shootings. But not only are they used in mass shootings, they increase the lethality of mass shootings by allowing a shooter to shoot multiple bullets in succession and harm or injure or kill more people in less amount of time. So really, the state is focused on preventing those incidents from happening and preventing more people from dying when they do happen. And the state has argued that gun owners who own large capacity magazines do not even need them for self-defense because when it comes to uh, someone defending themselves at home in incidents where people have needed to shoot their weapons, they typically shoot 2.2 bullets. So far less than than the 10 bullets allowed in the state and certainly far less than what a large capacity magazine can hold. So the state's arguing essentially you don't need that many bullets to defend yourself. And so this really is a minor inconvenience to gun owners. And what's the argument that's been successful so far from the gun owners about why that ban is unconstitutional? Gun owners have argued that the large capacity magazine ban um, was basically an arbitrary number kind of picked out of a hat by the state of California, that um, the 10 number ban, it doesn't really have any data showing that there's some magic number with 10. And the, their concern is that LCMs with you know 10 or 13 or 17 bullets are really commonly owned by gun owners, and they are commonly sold as a standard attachment when someone purchases a firearm. And so because of that commonality of how many people own them, they're really saying that this burdens the rights of, of gun owners, that it burdens the Second Amendment. Did the judges signal how they might be leaning in this case? There was kind of the lengthy, interesting back and forth questioning with a circuit judge at the Ninth Circuit who was appointed by Donald Trump. He was actually the last judge to be appointed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals before President Trump left office. 
and his name was Lawrence Van Dyke. And so he's kind of argued that the state's position that people rarely need more than a few bullets to defend themselves doesn't hold up because on the flip side, mass shootings compared to all shooting incidents are also rare. And so he kind of suggested that the state's argument hinging on the rarity of the need to have more than a few bullets just doesn't hold up because mass shootings are also rare. And so the state's interest in preventing them from happening, it can't outweigh the interests of gun owners to own those attachments, according to that judge. The large capacity magazine ban was initially overturned by a federal judge here in San Diego, Judge Roger Benitez, the same judge who recently overturned California's ban on assault weapons. Now, he has said some unusual things about these weapons, hasn't he? He has. He has really come out in these very lengthy court orders. I think the first one was about 75 pages and the subsequent one was over 100 pages. So very lengthy, almost manifesto type court orders that really appear to be written by someone who's not only sympathetic to uh, gun owners, but who is you know, almost using their position as a judicial officer to advocate for them. Um, When I first covered this case in 2018, he said in open court that he believed women would be raped and dead without access to more than 10 bullets, that they could shoot 10 bullets for a home invasion and run out of bullets and then, you know, be out of luck. And that position has really continued throughout his court opinions on the case. Now, he no longer has jurisdiction over the case because the en banc panel of the Ninth Circuit has now taken over the case. And really, this decision uh, that they will come out with in about 60 or 90 days will be kind of the final say on the matter unless the case gets appealed to the Supreme Court. And I have been speaking with Courthouse News reporter Bianca Bruno. Bianca, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. A little slice of classic Southern California habitat is getting long-term protection in San Diego's North County. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the Escondido Creek Conservancy has wrangled more than $2 million to buy 79 acres of hilly land. People walking in this hilly, undeveloped pocket of land might catch a whiff of sage or mint. Short, stubby flowers reach skyward from rock-hard earth that's been dried out by the sun. Golden grasses catch the wind, and off in the distance, a bird or two makes its presence known. This pocket habitat sits pretty close to home sites, trying to take advantage of nearby lofty views. As everyone knows, lots of development, lots of human activity in Southern California. Leonard Whitwer's hat shades his eyes from the early morning sun. He's the Escondido Creek Conservancy's board president. There are patches of what California was, and this this is one of them, and we're, we're trying to preserve those, both for the wildlife, but also for the human residents. This patch of what was is idyllic habitat for the endangered California gnatcatcher. 
The tiny bird forages for insects in the low-lying shrubs. Gnatcatchers raise their young in nests just a few inches off the ground. But those nests are tucked inside dense shrubbery. It's the bird's presence that helps make this preserve possible. The money that, that purchased this property came largely from the state of California, the Wildlife Conservation Board, and the federal government through the Endangered Species Act. So the, as a society, we've decided to set money aside to conserve land like this. Overall, the Escondido Creek Conservancy has helped buy and protect roughly 7,000 acres of wild habitat in the creek's watershed. Conservation Director Hannah Walchek says this plot of land is a great slice of coastal sage scrub habitat, but it is also much more. It's a 79-acre preserve, so it's not enormous, but it functions as like a puzzle piece linking larger preserved pieces of land. Fitting an important puzzle piece into the interwoven lattice of homes and habitat helps create bridges for larger species. It is a piece that will facilitate a connection between thousands of acres of open space in the city of Carlsbad and thousands of acres of open space along Escondido Creek in the county of San Diego. Mountain lions, bobcats, and coyotes all require room to roam, hunt, and breed. Habitat like this strengthens the connections. It also builds a connection with the people who live near the preserve. The Conservancy's Ann Van Leer says this plot of land captures a slice of the region as it used to be. All of California, Southern California used to look like this, at least this part of the coastal California. And this will give them a picture of the past, but also a picture of the future. The scrubby habitat is being squeezed out of the region by housing developments, and that pressure is not diminishing. It inspires me to continue on. I'm a native Californian, and this is one of the times that I can feel like I'm giving back to California. And, sorry, I didn't know that would make me feel emotional. Um, this is a place that's very special. Uh, California, Southern California is very special to me. Coastal sage scrub habitat is found in dry coastal zones and inland valleys that are close enough to the ocean to be exposed to the marine layer. The utility service road has brought invasive weeds and grasses to part of the preserve, but Van Leer says that'll be addressed. We will be doing the very fundamental, we will be weeding, removing what doesn't belong here and letting the natural native habitat re replace itself. Cleaning up this preserve is an immediate priority for the Conservancy. Adding to the collection of preserved lands and teaching people the importance of natural habitat is part of the Conservancy's long-term agenda. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen.
Phil Beaumont is the lead vocalist of the San Diego band The Color 49. Strive to be all that you would hope for And I will sometimes be all that Crossing the U.S.-Mexico border has been a constant source of creativity for Phil's character-based, semi-fictional style of writing lyrics. He first immersed himself in the Tijuana art scene back in the mid-90s. Sometimes wake up on the floor. Phil is also the director of the museum school in San Diego, but not for long. He'll be stepping down at the end of the summer to focus on music full-time. In a new episode of the KPBS Border Podcast, Port of Entry, host Alan Lilienthal taps into music from our border region that's inspiring Phil's new cross-border projects. Bustitch, uh, particularly Polaris, that song is something that's often on a playlist for me. You know, growing up with a lot of the music that I did was kind of dark and gothic and I love it, still love it, but then also to listen to music that is just there for the music, for the dancing, for the for the movement of it is refreshing for me. Some of the new music that we're writing, I'm starting to use some electronic drums and trying to bring in a bit more electronica just to play around with that because it's not something I've ever really worked with. It's a bit of a dream of mine to be able to maybe do a collaboration with Ramon. Silent is a, an amazingly powerful band from Mexicali. Their live show is just pretty stunning, no? And so they put out this energy that, that is really pretty inspiring. One song in particular called A New Slave. First of all, Silent has an amazing drummer uh, named Rocio. But in this particular song, when they play it live, Jung Singh, who is the singer, he comes out and he also plays a floor tom and it just adds a really amazing kinetic energy to their show. And the cool thing about Silent is their music is, is, is quite different than ours um, because it's so heavy and it's a very heavy punk oriented, but it's also kind of an elegant punk, no? And so, you know, I, I've, I've taken a, a compliment from our music when people have mentioned that our music's kind of elegant, you know? And so even though sonically we don't pair up as far as rhythm and, and, and power, um, I think there is a, a sort of a connection with the kind of tone that they're doing, if not sonically, then visually and just kind of thematically. And so Young and I have talked about doing a collaboration as well to have him and I both sing on a, on a song of ours. One collaboration has come to fruition for Phil recently, 
with a musician he always admired but never dreamed he'd have the chance to work with, Ruben Albarran, lead vocalist of Café Tacuba. Café Tacuba is undeniably one of the most influential Latin rock bands of the past three decades. Especially in Mexico, where they're from, their iconic presence is on par with bands like U2 or something. It all came as a big surprise to Phil. He was searching for mariachi musicians to collaborate on a song called What Would I Know? So he called up Marla Gámez, an artist manager in Mexico City. And Marla also happens to be Ruben's manager. And we got to talking about the song and that I wanted to find these uh, musicians to help. And then I talked with her about perhaps doing a Spanish version of the song. And she said, oh, maybe you should ask Ruben. He's a fan of your music, which was a surprise to me, but a happy surprise. And I thought, oh, yeah, that would be great. Super. But I, I, I doubt he's going to do it. Why would he want to do that? He's a guy that sings in stadiums, has Grammys, and is on Disney soundtracks. But the next morning, Phil woke up to a text saying that Ruben loved the song. And just a month later, Phil was on a plane to Mexico City to record at Café Tacuba's studio. It was so generous of him. He put so much time into it, and I thought we were going to be making a, a Spanish version of the song, but we all decided that because the song is about some cross-border themes, that it would be best if it was a bilingual song. song, What Would I Know, Yo Que Se, looks at some border issues, but it also looks at some, you know, larger themes of why do we judge one another? We put these obstacles in the way of knowing one another better through borders or through judgment or politics. And when you get down to it, everyone has the same desire. And if we can just get out and, and experience others, we get a better understanding of this, and particularly with our neighbors. So the framework of the song was addressing that. What Would I Know, Yo Que Se will be available to stream on all major platforms on July 23rd. And The Color 49 will also be having a record release show that same night at the Casbah. That was Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal with Phil Beaumont, lead vocalist of The Color 49. To hear the full episode, go to portofentrypod.org or find Port of Entry on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.